in a series on Haggai. And um, last week, one of the things that I, I said about this book for us is that Haggai is a book that gives a blueprint for revival. Because this book happens during a major pivot point in Israel's history. Um, they've come back from exile. They're seeking to revive the nation. And the central project was the rebuilding of the temple. Uh, but for 16 years, as we saw last week, the, the temple had just been sitting there incomplete. And so like, a, a, like an alarm clock, Haggai comes along and he wakes the people up. And he says, now's the time to build the temple. No more delays. No more excuses. Build the thing. And that was, that was last week. That was Haggai's first message. And, uh, and we saw that it actually worked. That Haggai came along, he, he spoke to the people, they listened, they obeyed, and the building resumed. But, but, every revival encounters resistance. And so tonight, in chapter 2, um, we're going to look at a scene in this book where the people have become discouraged in the middle of the revival. And the project risks coming to a halt. Um, and now, why is this? Uh, what, what I want to do tonight is I want to look at the, the passage through the lens of what one author has called the dominant spirit of our age. The thing that's afflicting them, and the thing that very often is afflicting us, is the parasite of cynicism. Cynicism. So let's read this together. Uh, this is Haggai chapter 2, verses 1 through 9. And I'm going to read it on my phone here, since the Bible I actually have is not the right version that you have on your handout. <laughs> uh, so, oh, no, 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 okay, just kidding. I'm going to read the other version on my Bible, because my phone is not doing its job. Uh, Haggai <laughs> chapter 2. On the 21st day of the seventh month, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Haggai. Speak to Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, to Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to the remnant of the people. Ask them, who of you is left who saw this house in its former glory? How does it look to you now? Does it not seem to you like nothing? But now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord, and work. For I am with you, declares the Lord Almighty. This is what I covenanted with you when you came out of Egypt, and my spirit remains among you. Do not fear. This is what the Lord Almighty says. In a little while, I will once more shake the heavens and the earth, the sea and the dry land. I will shake all nations, and the desired of all nations will come, and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord Almighty. The silver is mine, and the gold is mine, declares the Lord Almighty. The glory of this present house will be greater than the glory of the former house, says the Lord Almighty. And in this place, I will grant peace, declares the Lord Almighty. Um, and Holy Spirit, I just invite you to come right now and just to illuminate this text and to make Jesus real to us and help us to know him and to love him and to honor him in this place. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, um, so what I want to do, we're going to look at uh, two things. Oh, how did that even get up there? I didn't even, didn't even, the slides are just spontaneously being made in the middle of this message. This is great. Um, we're going to look at two things tonight. We're going to look at the problem of cynicism uh, and then we're going to look at two cures that this passage offers. The problem of cynicism and two cures. Um, so look at verse 1. Verse 1. Uh, in verse 1, you find out that uh, this second message of Haggai is delivered to the people on the 21st day of the seventh month. 
Now, uh, for those of you who are calendrically inclined, that uh, if you wanted to have that in our uh, calendar, that would be October the 17th, 520 BC. Interesting, interesting fun fact. Now, the thing is, if you compare that date with the date that is given at the end of chapter 1, you find out that the time of that message, um, that this second message comes after the rebuilding project has gone on for about a month, about a month or so. But it's only a month in that this, this huge revival that has happened with the, the temple being restarted, that now there's a spiritual illness that has broken out among the people again. And in verse two, verses 2 and 3, um, you kind of find out a clue of what it is. So look at 2 and 3. You find out that the people are, are looking at the size and the scope of the new temple that's being built. And their reaction is to say, is this it? Is this it? Is this small, tiny, little, low budget, reduced pile of bricks all that God has for us? Do you see? And so this is then what explains God's question in verse 3. He says, Who of you is left who saw this house in its former glory? How does it look to you now? Does it not seem to you like nothing? Now, what is this? This is cynicism. Cynicism. What is a cynic? What is a cynic? Oh, yeah, Cameron? It's just someone who's negative. Okay, maybe negativity, yeah. Um, A cynic is someone who claims to see through things to what they really are, you know. It's, it's, It's the person who says, you know, oh, so you see this temple and you think it's really great, don't you? Well, if only you'd seen the old one, you know. If only you'd seen what I've seen. If only you knew what I know. And this attitude is everywhere in our culture. Um, Let me read you something that, uh, here's how one author puts it. Uh, Definition. Modern cynicism can be defined as something like the resigned certainty that at bottom, people in life ultimately suck. little crass, but it's true. Uh, that's, that's a pretty good definition of cynicism. And uh, I, I probably don't need to tell you, this is, this is the defining feature of the mood in our age. Uh, let me just I'm gonna read, read another quote from this same, this same source. Um, so, so this actually kind of takes you back a little bit. Uh, in 2008, Barack Obama could still run for president on a platform of hope. In 2020... Trump's Make America Great Again and Biden's Build Back Back Better only had one thing in common. They looked backward. We are afraid to imagine the future. Rather, we are afraid of what we cynically predict. Climate change, World War III, demonic AI overlord. (laughs) People are constantly talking about change, but have never been more afraid of it or cynical about its possibilities. Now, do you see this? I mean, I'm sure, like, as I'm, as I'm saying this, you can, you can, it's just, it's the spirit of the age. You can see it everywhere. Now, one of the things that makes cynicism so powerful is that it's actually based on truth. Now, notice that God here actually doesn't contradict the people's assessment. He comes to them and he says, does it not seem to you like nothing? <laughs> He's saying the temple really does kind of seem scrawny and insignificant. And in fact, this is somewhat r- applicable in our own day. You know, the fact of the matter is that we don't know what the future is going to hold. Um, the fact is, we do live in unstable times. It's not impossible that in the next several years, 
that there will be all kinds of terrible things that might happen on the world stage or the economic stage. But, but the, the, this is the whole point. Cynicism is not based on the full truth. The reality is, is that we really don't know. We don't know what the future holds. And this is what makes cynicism such a prison. If you were to ask a cynic, they'll, they'll say to you, oh, I'm not a pessimist. I'm not at all, not me. I'm a realist. I'm a realist. I'm just, I'm just calling a spade a spade. But don't you see that in reality, they're not realistic enough. Realism means admitting that you actually don't know the future. And that means that things could be a whole lot worse or a whole lot better than what you'd expect. But oh, no, no, not for the cynic. Just as a fever makes the whole body feel sick, so a few grim facts become all that a cynic can see. And it crushes all hope in the process. Now, as I said, you can see this everywhere in our culture. But here's the real zinger. You can see this everywhere in the church. In the church. Um, when was this? This was February. In Wilmore, Kentucky, there was the Asbury Awakening. Uh, I'm sure many of you saw this, that, that there was just this incredible outpouring of the spirit and presence of God on this tiny little Christian college in the middle of nowhere in Kentucky. And like tens of thousands of people showed up because they were so desperate to, to, to know and to experience the presence of God. And, and there were all these beautiful stories that came out of this awakening of people publicly repenting of sin and of being healed of anxiety and depression. But, I, you know, maybe some of you saw this too. Not, not much time went on before I saw all kinds of posts and tweets and podcasts from quote-unquote discerning Christians who had taken it upon themselves to pick the whole thing apart. And, and, and would you know, basically say that you know, because of this, that, or the other thing, you know, surely this can't actually be genuine. Now, I'm not trying to say that discernment's bad. There's a lot of counterfeit stuff out there, and I'm not even trying to make a judgment on, on, on what that particular event really was. But it raises the question, if God really did move, would we even accept it? <laughs> you know, would we even accept it? Would we just pick it all apart and, and like, miss the very thing that we've prayed for? And notice that among the church people in Haggai's day, this is the same thing that's happening. And, by the way, there's an age distinction here. Notice that it's actually not the young who are disappointed in the new house. In verse 3, it says that those who saw the house in its former glory are the ones who are complaining. In other words, it's the older generation. And in our day, cynicism has gotten into the bloodstream of pretty much everybody. But there's a hint here that this may be a risk of those who particularly are in the second half of life. Now, I hope that that's none of us, if you know what I mean. <laughs> but, but second half of life or not, you know, it could still be the case that maybe you consider yourself a bit of an old soul. <laughs> maybe you consider yourself um, just you know, someone who kind of identifies with, with older age. And, and I just want to warn you that this passage says that... You have to beware the spirit of cynicism, if that is, if, especially if that is the case. The older generation looks at the temple, and they say, sure, that's a temple, but if only you'd seen the temple. You know, oh, how I pity the younger generation. Oh, how I wish that it were still the good old days. Raise your hand, by the way, if you feel like you've encountered that spirit from others in the body of Christ. 
Yep, a little bit. So cynicism, cynicism. It's a big problem for them. It's a big problem for us. And what are we going to do about it? In this passage, there are two cures that Haggai gives. Two cures for the fever of cynicism. And here they are. Number one, you have to know something about what God is doing in the present. And number two, you have to know something about what God is going to do in the future. So let's look at these two. First of all, you've got to know something about what God is doing in the present. Uh, so go back again to verse 1. It's there on the handout. Uh, this is where we're, we're told that this message comes on the 21st day of the seventh month. Uh, now, when we read this date, it's a little bit, you know, doesn't really mean anything to us. If we were them and we were reading that date, it would be a little bit like saying, you know, on July 4th or on December 25th is when this message came. Because the 21st day of the seventh month was the last day of the Jewish Feast of Tabernacles. Anyone know what the Feast of Tabernacles is here tonight? Whenever I spent much time thinking about the Feast of Tabernacles, I see some people nodding. Yeah, uh, the Feast of Tabernacles is one of the, the three major feasts uh, that God commanded the Jewish people to celebrate in the Law of Moses. It was seven days long. You know, imagine if like Christmas were seven days long. I guess the song says it's 12 days long, but no one really celebrates Christmas for 12 days. Anyway, this, this was actually, this was seven real days. And during those seven days, uh, God commanded the Israelites to take palm branches and palm fronds and to make themselves little shelters, little tabernacles to live in. So you can kind of think of it as like a week-long national campout. Yeah, pretty, pretty fun. Could you imagine if all of America did that? You wouldn't want to do that in the south, though, because if you go camping in the south in the summertime, it's just, like, roasting hot. You wouldn't want to do it. But anyway, uh, so, so what's the significance of this? Why does God command this big national camp out? Well, the reason behind the ritual was that the Feast of Tabernacles pointed both backward and forward to two great events in the history of Israel. On the one hand, it looked back to the Exodus, when God had crushed the Egyptians, he'd rescued the Israelites, he'd split the Red Sea. And in a spectacular blaze of glory, he founded the nation of Israel as the one and only nation that had ever been called and saved by God. And so the Israelites really did live in shelters after crossing the Red Sea. And for that reason, the Feast of Tabernacles uh, was a time when the Israelites were supposed to live in shelters again to remember when they came out of Egypt. So that was the past event. Uh, but then the Feast of Tabernacles also looked forward to a future event as well. The day when the Messiah would reign over the whole earth. When the Israelites were living in the wilderness, um, every night that they crawled back into their tents during their 40-year camping trip, those shelters would have reminded them that they weren't home yet. And just think, you know, surely they must have dreamed of a day when they would actually enter the promised land, when they'd enjoy not just peace, prosperity, and permanence, but they would actually get to no longer have to live in a tent, but they'd get to dwell in a house, in a home. And so the Feast of Tabernacles looks forward to the last and greatest day of human history when the long-awaited Jewish Messiah will reign as king and everything will be made right again. So it is a little bit ironic in a way. This is a holiday that both looked backwards as well as forwards. Backwards to the greatest day of Israel's past and forwards to the greatest day of Israel's future. Does that make sense? 
So, so th- this is when this, this message is given. The timing's significant. Now, now um, maybe some of you who grew up reading the, the Chronicles of Narnia by C.S. Lewis, you might remember there's a scene in, in the, the prequel book, The Magician's Nephew, where the boy Diggory and his friend Polly find a portal into what they assume is, is, a, is a, a different world, but they actually discover that the, the place it leads them to isn't an actual world. It's just a big forest that's full of more portals to other actual worlds. And so uh, it's just nothing there but a bunch of portals and a bunch of trees, and so they decide to call it the Wood Between the Worlds. Well, the Feast of Tabernacles was the feast between the worlds. It's right in the middle. Not of the past, not of the future, but in the present. And the present is a breeding ground for cynicism. I mean, think about it. You can't go back to the good old days of the past. And the future, even if the future is good, feels too far away. So instead, you're, you're stuck in the present in a scrappy little tent. So you see the math here. The high expectations from the past plus low expectations for the future equals cynicism in the present. See that? And so you can see why it's so fitting that this message comes when it does. You know, the way the people would have been celebrating the Feast of Tabernacles, the way they would have felt about this, it's exactly the same way that they would have felt about the temple. You know, they're, they're thinking to themselves, we know that God was in the temple in the past. We know he'll be in the messianic reign in the future. But surely he can't be in this scrappy little tent in the present. Do you see that? And and do you see the way that we do this? You know, we say, we know that God was there with John Wesley and Charles Wesley and George Whitfield and the the Great Awakener. We know he was there with, you know, when Billy Graham preached the gospel to millions of people. And we know that one day Jesus is going to come back and it's going to be amazing, but it doesn't seem like God's doing anything to me right now. We say that, don't we? We have the same, we, we can fall guilty of the same spirit of cynicism. And so God breaks in with a promise for the present. Look at verses four and five. Uh, who of you is left who saw this house in its former glory? How does it look to you now? Does it not seem to you like nothing? But now be strong and work. For I am with you, declares the Lord Almighty. This is what I covenanted with you when you came out of Egypt. My spirit remains among you. Do not fear. So the people say, God can't be in this scrappy little temple. But God says, I am in this scrappy little temple. (laughs) And I am with you. I am active and I'm working. And notice, by the way, that he mentions the exodus. He's saying, my presence, the very same thing that they have, is what you have. Let me just ask you a question. What do you do in a discouraging time? What do you do in a discouraging time? You know this story. I've told this story before. Uh, But before I was here, I was in England. I lived in England for two years. The main reason was to pursue a career with an organization I admired. I had both of the doors get slammed shut in my face to... Option number one, and then the other, I had another option I was pursuing at the same time. I, I, I finished kind of the program I was there to do, just completely flabbergasted and disappointed that every door had closed in my face. I came back home. I felt like I was at square one. I was completely lost, discouraged, confused. 
And then a few years later, I think it was probably close to four or five years later, the founder of that organization wound up being the subject of an enormous, probably one of the most enormous uh, scandals in the Christian world. And the whole organization collapsed. <laughs> and I realized that in the season of my incredible discouragement and confusion that God was actually sparing me. <laughs> like if I had actually gotten the job I wanted, I wouldn't have had a job. And, 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 and in other words, God really, God really had been working in that present. I just had no idea at the time. And, and that is not just a nice little story. You know, that is not just a, uh, you know, a, a fun little anecdote. That, that is a biblical truth. That is a biblical truth. Romans 8, 28, For we know that all things work together for the good of those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. You might feel cynical about the current place that your life is at. And I just want to tell you, it's either your word or it's God's word. Because God's word says that no matter how mundane or dark or dire your present circumstances are, God is working in the present. He is working in those circumstances. He is working through those circumstances to bring about his perfect plan for our good and his glory. And that's what we need. You know, see, when you're confused, when you're hurting, when all your outward circumstances just, you know, make it seem like God is absent and has abandoned you, and, and that nothing makes any sense, we, we need the assurance that it's not true, that God is active, that he's there, that he's working behind the scenes. Now, let's apply this. Let's apply this. I mean, you know, there's a lot of hand-wringing among people of faith right now about the future of Christianity in America. Lots of studies are showing that American Christianity is declining, will continue to do so for the next several decades. And the default reaction is typically to say, we have no choice but to be cynical about this. And just to say, everything is awful and that God can't be working in this. And I just want to tell you, that is not of God. You do not have to be a cynic because God is working in the present. Let me tell you a story. In the 5th century, as the Roman Empire was crumbling, there was a young man who was born into the British aristocracy. Uh, he was abducted one day by raiders. He was sold into slavery uh, into a distant country. And for the next six years, this young man lived as an obscure slave. He suffered hunger, hardship, and loneliness. Eventually, probably miraculously, he, he managed to escape back to his home country. But no sooner had he gotten there than he, he, he felt impelled by God to go back to the land of his captors to bring them the good news of the gospel. And maybe you know, the name of that man was St. Patrick. And the day that he stepped foot back again in Ireland may have been one of the most important days in all of European history, if not world history, no joke, because, because what, what happened through St. Patrick was that in contrast to the hierarchical, bureaucratic Roman church, Patrick oversaw the birth of an organic, contextualized move of God in Ireland. That move of God gave rise to the Celtic missionary movement, and the Celtic missionary movement was significantly responsible for re-evangelizing Europe after the Roman Empire fell. 
Now, why do I tell the story? I tell the story because it goes to show that even in evil times, God is always working in the present. He's always working in the present. Maybe it's on the margins. Maybe it's behind the scenes. Maybe it's in ways that you can't fully understand and may never understand this side of eternity, but he is. He is working. I've got a book at home on my shelf. It's this great little missionary biography, and it's simply called God Can. It's about a pioneer missionary to um, some tribal peoples in Papua New Guinea. And it's got these great little chapter titles. I love these. And, and they're all in reference to key moments in this man's life where, um, where God intervenes. So here, let me give you a couple examples. Titles like, God can open doors. God can supply needs. God can change government decrees. Or here's my personal favorite. God can cause cannibals to be friendly. God can. God can. But the slogan of cynicism is God can't. God can't answer my prayers. God can't speak to me personally. God can't bring revival. Or how about this? You know, God can't work in 21st century America because the schools are so bad or the wrong people are in office or the country is too backslidden. I mean, do you see the outrageous arrogance that lies behind that? The cynical Christian is basically saying, oh, I know how God works. I've got God figured out. I know what he's going to do. No, you don't. You're not God. Since when were you God? Since when do you know what God's going to do? The tragic thing about being a cynic is that you can never be surprised. You can never be surprised anymore. You know, one of my favorite things about grace is that grace is always a surprise. It's always a surprise. You know, if you know that you don't deserve it, then you're not going to be looking for it or expecting it. But when it comes, it's just like the most exhilarating surprise ever. And if God is a God of grace, and he is, then you never know what he might do. You never know when he might be raising up a Patrick as nations rage and empires crumble. You never know when he might meet a Saul on a Damascus road. And you never know when he might roll away a stone and resurrect things that are dead. So, we have to know something about what God is doing in the present. That's cure number one. And then, uh, second and, and fairly briefly, cure number two. Cure number two is that we have to know something about what God is going to do, not just in the present, but in the future. Let me read again just uh, from verse six. This is what the Lord Almighty says. In a little while, I will once more shake the heavens and the earth, the sea and the dry land. I will shake all nations and the desire of all nations will come. And I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord Almighty. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord Almighty. The glory of this present house will be greater than the glory of the former house. And in this place, I will grant peace. So do you see the absolute bomb that God is dropping on these people? Um, you know, they're saying the new temple is never going to be as grand as the old temple. And God says, that's right, that's right. It's going to be grander. It's going to be greater. <laughs> and by the way, it's true. It was grander, it was greater. If you know your history, you know that under King Herod, the, the second temple really did become bigger and grander and greater than that of King Solomon. And even more, years after that, Jesus Christ would come to this temple. The glory of God finally came back. 
But now do you see what God is doing here? He's, <laughs> he's raising their hopes. He's giving them a brief glimpse behind the curtain to show them that the future is not only better than what they were expecting, but it's better beyond their wildest dreams. Now, th- th- this is kind of a dangerous thing. You don't want to raise people's hopes, because if you raise people's hopes, what happens if they're disappointed? But God does it. And he does it because this is what we need to deal with cynicism. Do you remember, um, this is in the Gospel of Luke, that the two disciples on the Emmaus Road. It's the, it's the first Easter Sunday. Uh, these two disciples are, are traveling from Jerusalem to a village called Emmaus. But in Luke 24, Luke recounts for us that as they're walking down the road, Jesus himself comes up and starts walking alongside them. But they're kept from recognizing that it's Jesus. And, and here's how it continues. Uh, so Jesus, this is Jesus talking. Uh, he asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still, their faces downcast. One of them named Cleopas asked him, Are you only a visitor to Jerusalem and do not know the things that have happened there in these days? What things? he asked. Probably with a twinkle in his eye, I think. (laughs) About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was to be the one who was going to redeem Israel. We had hoped. Do you see that? It's in the past tense. As in, at one time they had hope, but now they don't. Now they've lost it. Why? The reason they've lost it is because they're only living in half of the story. They're only living in half the story. The disciples on the Emmaus Road knew the first half of the story. They knew Jesus died. But they didn't know the other half, which was that he rose. And it was just like this in Haggai's day. The people in Haggai's day knew the story of how the temple started. They didn't know the story of how the temple finished. And without that hope, they became cynical. But what if, what if our wildest dreams were really true? What if there really were that kind of hope for the future? Anyone here read Lord of the Rings? Any Lord of the Rings fans? Yeah. Okay. I just finished the Silmarillion last uh, December. It was great. Would recommend. There's a, there's a little essay that J.R.R. Tolkien, the author of the Lord of the Rings, wrote. Um, and it's, it's, it's a little essay called On Fairy Stories. And it's kind of, it's sort of like Tolkien's philosophy for how to write good fantasy. Or he called fantasy, he called them fairy stories. And, and in that essay, he makes the observation that one of the great values of fairy stories, such as the Chronicles of Narnia or the Lord of the Rings, is that even though the stories themselves are obviously false, what they do is they, they unveil the world that we want to be real. And it's the world that you find in every good fantasy book. It's a world where just when it seems all hope has been lost, a light triumphs over darkness. You know, it's a world where good defeats evil, where love lasts forever, where death is not the end. Now, even though we know that the fantasy world isn't real, the reason these elements show up again and again and again in all the stories is because we hear them and they sound so right. You know, it feels like they should be real, even if we know that they're not. Except in one case. 
Tolkien was writing as a Christian, and he made the observation that the gospel has all the elements of a good fairy story. Good does defeat evil. Love does last forever. Death doesn't have the last word. The only difference is that the gospel is true. The gospel is the true fairy story to which all the other ones point. And that is not just being figurative here, because on the Emmaus Road, Jesus revealed himself as the risen Lord. And if he really rose, if it really is true that Jesus rose from the dead, then Tolkien is right. One day everything sad is going to be made untrue. And I want you to imagine what your life would be like if you really believed that. If you really believed that that was what the future is going to hold. I mean, yeah, you'd have hard times in your life. But you'd never lose heart and you'd never lose hope because you would know that if Jesus really rose from the dead, then everything will be all right in the end. And so this is why the people needed Haggai's second message. They got discouraged because all their hope was in the past. You know, they thought things are never going to get better. The golden age is behind us. But don't you see, if you're a Christian, the golden age is always, always ahead. And that's amazing. I mean, remember what I said about how a cynic thinks that, uh, you know, they don't think that they're a pessimist because they think they're a realist? Don't you see that when you get discouraged about your life or about the state of the world or about the state of the church, don't you see that your problem is not that you're too realistic, that you're thinking too much. It's that you're not thinking enough. You haven't really stopped to think out the implications of the resurrection. But if you do, if you stop, if you really chew on the fact that the golden age is always ahead, that, that, that Jesus really rose, then oh my goodness, you can face anything. You'll never be a cynic again. That's what we need. Not just a promise about the present, but a hope for the future. And the way that both of those things come down to us is through the person of Jesus himself. You know, in Haggai's day, God assured his people of these things by speaking through a prophet. You know, through Haggai, he told them. But 500 years later, he showed them. 500 years later, Jesus Christ came into our present. He tabernacled among us. He secured our future. He died and rose again. He didn't just abandon us to, 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 to wait and to suffer in the middle of all of the doubt and uncertainty and grief and loss and pain and cynicism of, of the present that we're living in. He came into that present. He died in the present. He rose in that present so that we could have a, a durable, lasting, overwhelmingly good hope in the future. And so as we wrap up, just a few closing reflections. Um, last week, we spoke about how in order to contend for personal or renewal or corporate revival, we need to have a spirit of contending rather than a spirit of consumerism. Um, and it could be that, that maybe like the Jews in Haggai's day, you know, a few weeks or a few months into trying to contend, you're beginning to feel discouraged. Um, one of the things I love about this chapter is that he's speaking to people who, who are trying to go for it. They're trying to follow Jesus, but following Jesus is not easy. It's hard. It's hard. 
And, and if, there, if there are people here who, who tonight feel like they have been slugging it out and have just been, been trying and, and pushing and pressing to persevere, and you're in this place where you're just, you're, you're just not seeing hope and you're discouraged, then can I encourage you that this passage is for you? God put this passage in the Bible for you. He, just like he comes to them, he wants to come to you and say, I know what it's like. I know it looks small, but I'm telling you, I am with you. My spirit is among you. Now be strong and work. Be strong and work. And could I also suggest to you that it could be that if you find yourself stuck in the prison of cynicism, it may be that, you know, it may feel like you have tried God and God has failed you. But can I suggest to you that it isn't that your view of God was too big, but it's actually that it's too small. And when I was in college, I had a professor who told me once, a cynic is someone who thinks they know too much. A cynic is someone who thinks they know too much. What if the reality is not that you know too much, but what if it's that it's actually that you know too little? You know, the disciples, they thought on the Emmaus Road, they, they knew about his death, they didn't know about his resurrection. Jesus wants to exchange a cynical faith tonight for a childlike faith. Children know that they don't know everything. Children know that, that it's not about how much they know, it's about the trustworthiness of the Father who holds their hand. And a faith that knows that it doesn't know is a faith that still has room for awe and wonder. Don't you want to have awe and wonder in your life? That's what Jesus wants. It's what he wants for us. And so just as we close, I wanna, I'm going to pray for us. And so I'm going to pray that God would just, just pour out just a spirit of renewal, a spirit of childlike faith and encouragement, especially if you know that you're here tonight and you are in need of that kind of refreshing. So would you pray with me? Father, Son, and Spirit, I, I pray right now that you would just pour out refreshment on weary souls. Lord, would you just break any, any bonds of... of of thinking that we know too much, of being locked in the, just the, the smothering prison of cynicism. God, would you break us out of it? Would you set us free? Father, would you draw us back to the, the, the hope and the wonder of the gospel? And in Jesus' name, would you just show us that if, if, if Jesus really rose, that everything sad is going to become untrue, that all of the, the, the wildest hopes and dreams that we could ever have really are real. Father, we can't, just through talking about this, make this come to be. Would, you, would your spirit, just by your spirit, come right now and just pour out refreshment, pour out renewal. Would you pour out hope right now into our hearts so that we could taste and see again that you are good. Jesus name in Jesus name amen